You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world. How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. There were giants in the earth in those days. Genesis 6-1. Fee-fow-fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be alive or be he dead. I'll grind his bones to make my bread. The Giant Called Thunderdell from Jack the Giant Killer. Giants appear in cultures around the world. Biblical tales of giants more than 10 feet tall. Roman and Greek stories of titans and giant heroes. European stories of giants of mountain and hill. These tales all have one thing in common, enormous monsters. On this episode of Monster Talk, we chat with an archaeologist, Dr. Ken Fader, about giants, biblical archaeology, and one of the greatest hoaxes in American history. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, linguist, skeptic, and blogger, and Ben Radford, managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer, skeptical investigator, and blogger, we bring you information about the science behind monstrous myths and legends. Today, we're going to talk with Dr. Kenny Fader about giants, but first, I have to apologize. Normally, at the beginning of each episode of Monster Talk, We get together, the three skeptics, and we chat about the topic at hand, what we know about it firsthand, any research we've done on it. I'm talking unscripted here. The normal format uh, is not going to happen this week because I had some serious technical issues. Unfortunately, these issues, they rendered the intro talk unusable. And the fantastic interview I had with Dr. Fader, uh, Ben Radford and I, uh, unfortunately Karen wasn't able to make it, but this interview was so much fun. It was uh, almost an hour and a half long, and Dr. Fader gave us all this time and uh, was just a delight to talk with. 
But at the end of the, the interview, it turned out that the audio was clicking all the way through. It was clicking all the way through, and I was really upset. Uh, fortunately, um, I contacted Swoopy from Skepticality, which is now our sister podcast, and she did some editing on it and was able to make it much more palatable. It's still not great. Um, the audio quality is just, just not great, but the content is, is fantastic. So I, I hope you'll uh, bear with me. I apologize once again for the change in format here um, and for the sound of the audio quality. But I am so happy with the, the content of this episode. And I'm looking forward to having Dr. Fader back on in the future to talk about ancient astronauts in uh, as much as they fall into our uh, bailiwick uh, as a, a monstrous topic. So Dr. Ken Fader is a professor of archaeology at Central Connecticut State University and has authored several books on archaeology, most notably Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology. You'll hear Ben and me uh, and Dr. Fader uh, amusingly repeating the title of the book, but really it is a fantastic book. If you're at all interested in archaeology, I recommend you get a copy of it. Uh, as I like to say, and hopefully you can make it out during the interview, uh, there's more skeptical content in the cover of this book than in many entire television series on History Channel these days. Um, he's got just fantastic information cover to cover. Um, it's, a, I think, a $45 book, new, but you can get um, discount copies on Amazon. <laughs> I don't want to rob Dr. Fader of any money, though. <laughs> At any rate, um, so upcoming uh, is the interview. Um, one more thing, uh, Dr. Fader, he's bright, he's erudite, he's passionate, and he cusses like a sailor. So I've bleeped that out because our show is also broadcast on AM Radio Michigan. Hello, Michigan! Anyway, I hope this is airable. Um, I hope this is usable. I hope you find it as good as any other episode of Monster Talk. I apologize one more time for the quality, but I do not apologize for the quality of the content. Monster Talk. Why are you here? What are your credentials, and how? what do you know about giants? I am one badass motherfucker that comes to giants, man. That's what I'm about. Why, um, do you believe, why should we believe any of this you say? Oh, there's no fucking way you should believe anything I say. That's what, that's, the, that's what I tell my students when I walk in the class the first day. Don't believe me because I'm the guy at the front of the class or because I'm giving you your grades. It's all about did the things that I'm saying, are they researched? Is there evidence to back it up? You know, question authority. Question me, just like you'd question the crap you see on the Internet or stuff that you read in a, in a magazine or any of that stuff. And, that, I mean, that's the reason that I'm here, I guess, is because I'm, I'm – sort of passionate about the study of the human past, and it drives me f***ing crazy when people take that past and they misrepresent it, they misinterpret it, and they, they, they just flat out lie about it. And I think the, the, the thing, the reason that I got into this thing at all is that when I was a kid, I believed all this crap. I actually went out and bought a copy of a book called Morning of the Magicians, which is, which is essentially Eric Von Donneken before there was Eric Von Donneken. And these guys were a couple of French authors who essentially said, yep, it's extraterrestrial aliens. It's all about that. And I read the book. And at the time, when I was, I was a teenager, I was already interested in, the, in archaeology. And I knew some of the stuff that they, these guys were talking about. And I knew that it was complete crap, and it got me really pissed off. It was the equivalent, you know, when they were a kid in the old days, you know, you used to, you used to pass around pornography. And the, the, the line is, turn to any page. And, it, you know, there's great stuff in any page. 
well, the, this morning of the magicians, it was like turn. It was archaeological pornography. Turn to any page, <laughs> and it was this crazy crap about. Well, the Inca couldn't have done this, and the, the Egyptians they couldn't have done this, and the Aztecs couldn't have done this. And this was something I knew something about, and it was all total crap. And it got me angry. And that's really, I was a teenager, and I started looking into this stuff, and ultimately became a professor. Started teaching a course. Um, we had this thing called search in archaeology. We're supposed to just make something up. You know, just let freshmen who don't know anything about anything, let, just let the class sort of flow. And I actually told them the first day, I said, look, I don't have a syllabus. Let's make a syllabus now. And the kids, the things that people put on the syllabus were ancient astronauts and psychic archaeology and all this other oh, stuff. so cool. I was, you know, and I thought, wow, this is weird that these, this is what these kids are interested in. Well, let's, I'll teach the course. And then I realized, well, this is a lot of fun but there's not a decent book for it. And mm. that's when, all right, paid, uh, you know, commercial announcement. It's when I started putting together the manuscript for Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology, available at a bookstore near you. Wait, can I, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't hear that. What was that? That was Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology, McGraw-Hill, available in bookstores near you. Um, let me, let me lot- just plug this, too, because I want to say that I tell people how great this book is, and I tell people, I appreciate. Seriously, there is more skepticism in the book cover (laughs) than an entire season of Mystery Quest. Well, there you go. There you go. That's anything on the History Channel because it is true. Your your reality check uh, questions uh, that people should be asking when they're examining uh, claims about archaeology. That's what you have on the cover, on the inside. Yeah, inside cover. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's there's nothing in here that's not useful. That's great. That's really great to hear. One of the nicest things, I mean, I, there, that, the book actually is used by a lot of my colleagues in archaeology, but some of the nicest stuff I get from people who are like teaching engineering, and they say, you know what? It's an inexpensive, relatively expensive book. It's a short book. I have my students read it the first week. It has nothing to do with my course, but, <laughs> but, but, but it is so dead on in terms of the scientific method, and this is a topic that kids are already interested in. They see that and they say, "Okay, now let's apply this to everything else we learn in this class." That's really nice when I get you know folks who aren't archaeologists or not in anthropology using it in completely different contexts, just because it's a really nice series of case studies on how the scientific method works and how the scientific method can sort of disabuse people of some of the crap that they've been fed on cable TV and on the internets and stuff like that. Well, let me ask you about that because, yeah. you know, as, as you, you know, you mentioned a couple of the, uh, the infamous authors, Van Donick and oh, yeah. only one of the, one of the worst ones. Um, is it, in your opinion, is, do they believe this stuff or are they just selling books? Are they just stupid or what, what's, what's the motivation there? Yeah, dude, it's a really interesting question. And I think it's different for each one of them. We actually like not more than a week and a half ago had this very conversation in my class on the ancient mysteries, which was this guy Von Donigan. We, you know, we watched the old, there's an old, um, episode of, it was Horizon and Innova, um, the case of the ancient astronauts where Von Donigan really is interviewed about this stuff. And so you get, he speaks in his own voice there. And the kids come away, most of my students, maybe they're a lot sharper than I am, they come away saying, he doesn't believe a word of this crap, that this has all been a scam from the very beginning. I'm not so sure. I think that maybe it was at the beginning, and, and maybe he sort of lost touch with what he knows is true and what he knows isn't true. Um, I really am not sure. I think it's different for all these guys. And some of these guys really truly believe it. And some of them have found a real what they what has turned out for them to be 
a pretty nifty way of traveling around the world and making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I'm not above that. I mean, if anybody wants to send me a whole lot of money and make a little travel, I'm there. Uh, you know, if this is funny, I don't know if you'll use it in the podcast, but I actually had a couple of students come to me at the end of the semester. This is a couple of years back. Um, and they, they sat me down and said, look, you know, Dr. Fader, we loved your book, but you're never going to get rich debunking stuff. People want to believe, and you'll be able to sell all books a lot better if you come out with a book that says all this stuff is true. And I said, well, guys, you know, this I have a certain professional reputation. I'm committed to the scientific method. I'm not interested in doing that. They said, no, but the deal is if, if me, Kenny, Kenny Fader, were to write, were to co- pro- pull off an archaeological fraud, it would do really well because it wouldn't have me, Kenny Fader, to debunk it. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. Yeah, I guess. And, but I told them, I turned them down. I said, no, I'm not going to do that, even though probably if anybody could pull one off successfully, it would be me and a handful of other people. And they then they came up with the best, the next best offer, which is they would let me write the book, pull off the fraud, but I could put their names on the cover, and we could split the royalties 50-50. And I was totally insulted by that because I wouldn't accept anything less than 80%, you know? <laughs> I'm with so, you, man. Yeah, dude, eighty percent. I think that was a. I think I was making them a pretty damn good offer. I was going to do all the work. They were just going to get to go around on you know TV shows and, and be interviewed about it. So a man with integrity. That's what we need. That's exactly so. You know, you're looking for that one honest guy. I'm your man right here. Well, you know, um, I, I think I mentioned it briefly in the frauds book, the whole Atlantis thing. How essentially this um, production company approached me, and they they were dangling all kinds of stuff in front of me because they wanted me to go on their show and say that Atlantis was, in fact, real, that I had rethought this whole thing. And then this was the production company doing a show for um, ABC, and it turned out it was at the behest of Disney, because Disney was putting out that cartoon called, what, The Lost Empire of Atlantis. And yeah, they yeah. really wanted archaeologists on this, what was what, what turned out to be an hour-and-a-half-long infomercial for the cartoon, mm-hmm. although it was being presented as a documentary that, oh, my God, Atlantis really could have existed. These scientists really say it was real, so therefore the cartoon is based in reality. You know, there's some some connection, logical connection to the real deal thing. And I turned them down flat. Even after they said to me, these are the guys who said to me, "Well, look, Dr. Vader, we we understand that you don't want to ruin your reputation. We know we know you don't want to say anything you don't believe. But I tell you what, we'll interview you. You answer your the questions any way you want. And they they actually said to me. We'll edit it in such a way that it sounds like you're a supporter, and then you can bitch about it later. It's, oh, my God. I mean, well, well then, see, now, again, these guys were being honest, weren't they? You know, they were telling me exactly what they were going to do. I told them to go fuck themselves. But, you know, but other – actually, a couple of colleagues of mine actually went along with it, not thinking that that would really happen. It happened, and they got all I, – I think they um, they actually filed some sort of a complaint with the FCC about it. But – yeah, good luck. Well, whatever, you know, good luck with that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Unless you show your naked breasts, I don't think they do anything, right? So. <laughs> I know. No, I refuse. I, I will only do nudity on a documentary if it's called for in the uh, the script. Let's talk about giants, shall we? So, so giants, uh, they're all through history. Uh, the Bible has stories of giants. Right well, then it, it must be true. Well, okay. yeah, exactly. <laughs> there on. you go. We're well, done. End of story. Our question, you know, so is there any reason to think that people who lived in ancient times were any larger than modern man? Is that is there any case? Have you found any archaeological evidence 
Uh, you're, you're referring when you say larger, you're referring to their height now, right? Exactly. Not, not any particular anatomical. <laughs> that, 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 yeah, uh, I, I, my understanding uh, is that uh, you know I mean, I, the shriveled uh, remains of Egyptian uh, mummies <laughs> would not really be good indicators of other no. types of. We don't really know how big Egyptian penises are. Well, no. In fact, <laughs> it's one of the really sad things is that you know, and they don't talk about this a lot. This is absolutely true. Um, but Howard Carter or one of his guys broke off Tut's dick. And nobody knows where it is. Honest to God, I'm not making that up. That apparently it was, it was I don't know, it was, uh, they broke it off? Gone. It's in your so, attic, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things we've been trying to hide from people. It's, eBay, uh, eBay. It's freaking huge, I mean, you know? <laughs> and uh, we all felt maybe really inadequate. Mrs. Carter knows what happened to it. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. There you go. She was. Yeah, she she smiles a lot in those photographs, doesn't she? Yeah, my gosh. That's anyway. Well, let's move moving right along. You know, actually, there is absolutely no evidence that people were any bigger or taller in the past. I mean, it's uh, that's that's absolutely crazy. Um, however, uh, you, yeah, you're right. You run into a lot of people who claim. I think mostly based on these, these biblical allusions to giants. Um, uh, I, and so at one point, I actually did a word search of the Old Testament and found something like, I don't know, 20 specific references in there to whole races of giant, the kingdom of Og in Syria, completely populated by 12 foot tall giants. And of course, as you know, there's Goliath and, 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 and those dudes, um, the Philistines. Goliath was what, 11 or 12 feet tall. So there are a lot of references in the Bible to it. And I think that people grab that, run with that and say, Oh, there must have been giants. And I think that the other thing that I see happening, and just to give you a little bit of background, um, a, a few years ago I was on some, some, uh, some chat in some chat group. And people usually getting really pissed at me because I tell them that the Shroud of Turin is a medieval, art, medieval artifact. Get over it. The ancient astronauts, there's nothing to that. Get over it. Atlantis, it's made up by Plato. Get over it. And I understand that because for a lot of people, those are the effectively the equivalent of religious beliefs. I'm not saying, oh, my God, my science is better than your science. I'm saying you have no science at all, and they don't care because they believe based on faith. And that includes ancient astronauts and Atlantis and a bunch of other stuff. But in those contexts, I usually – I used to think, well, I can always talk about the card of giant and the belief in giants because everybody knows that's bullshit. No, nobody really believes that. And I was shocked to find out that there actually are people out there who – believe as fervently in the existence, the ancient existence of giants, as anybody's belief in the Shroud of Turin or ancient astronauts or Atlantis or psychic archaeology or any of this other stuff. And the funny thing was, wow. I, was I, I got into a conversation with a guy who you know, told me essentially that I was full of crap, didn't know what I was talking about because there's definite proof, and that, in fact, archaeologists today are attempting to hide it so that, in other words, he wasn't even disagreeing with me. He figured I knew the truth. But I was obliged by my profession, apparently, to hide that truth, to keep that truth from the public. Because you guys couldn't handle it, could you? The end of civilization, if I were to tell you, oh, well, you know what, dudes? There were 10-foot tall people in the past. The civilization would collapse. The stock market would crash. We'd all be running around naked outside, uh, you know, waiting for the end of times. Because, <laughs> I guess. Anyway, um, the guy actually, this guy, though, actually sent me some citations. What about this in the Smithsonian bulletin and so on and so forth? And in fact, yeah, he's right. There are some citations, mostly from the 19th century in the American Midwest, in the mounds, these burial mounds that we now know Indians were building beginning a couple thousand years ago. 
There are a couple of these, the couple, there are several of these mounds in which reports were that very, very large human beings were found buried in those mounds. Now, in one case, he actually had a specific citation to a site that I knew the remains were at the Smithsonian, and I have contacts at the Smithsonian. And I actually contacted the, one of the forensic scientists there saying, hey, look, what's the deal with this? This guy says that when the thing was excavated back in the middle 19th century, that the report was that it was just the guy was ginormous, nine, ten feet tall. And I said, I know that that's probably not the case, but what do you know about it? And what these guys told me, and these guys deal with this all the time, is that the first thing is that when human bodies are put in the ground and when the, the soft parts decay and the connective tissue decays away – that the bones actually do migrate so that if I'm, I'm five foot six, I tell my students I'm six foot one and it's a whole optical illusion thing, but they're not buying that. But if you're five, I'm five foot six, you put me in the ground. By the time all those tissues connecting all of my long bones decay away, all that stuff connecting my, my um, vertebral column decay away, there is there's stretchage. Stretchage isn't a word, but you know what I'm saying? So that by mm-hmm. the time I'm done, the, if you measure from the tip of my top of my head to the bottom of my toes, it's going to be probably a foot longer than that. So I've already gained a foot by dying, which, wow. which sounds pretty damn impressive, right? Hmm. The other thing is that then, you know, you just get this, this, this incredible exaggeration of what people are finding, and it's, they're, not, they're not excavated professionally, and they're not recorded professionally. They're not photographed. But – Individual bones were measured, and that's all you need. Because, in fact, forensic scientists do this all the time. You know, if you've got 10 missing people and you find a, a skeletalized, skeletalized remains of a human being in the general vicinity, you want to figure out oh, of the 10 people who are missing, which one, if any, is represented in this skeleton. And so you do simple stuff. The first thing you do is, is it a male or a female? Because you have five missing males, five missing females. If we identify it as a male, we know it's none of the women. We identify, we can, and that's very easy to do. 96, 97% accuracy. If you have a whole skeleton, it's 98, 99% accuracy, distinguishing male from female. Then you'll figure out, well, how old was the person when the person died? So that, again, depending on the age range, we can either get within six months a year or certainly within the right decade when we get up to the, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70. So if you know the person who disappeared was a teenager, you know that if the skeleton you got there shows that, oh, this is somebody who is fully adult, all the, the, the effusion has, tra- has taken place, all the long bones, blah, 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 all of the teeth are in, the, the cranial sutures have started to, to fuse over. Well, you know that's not a teenager, so you've identified that. Another thing, and there's ethnicity as well, there are certain markers that are fairly good, fairly diagnostic in distinguishing Say Asians from Europeans from Africans do that all the time, yeah. and then just, just throwing that this is exactly what our listeners like to hear. So this is awesome. Right? This is yeah, this yeah. Is cool, cool. So we're getting like teeth wear and joint wear, that kind of stuff. All of that stuff. So it, it, if you want to identify a skeleton in terms of its its sex, you look at the pelvis. The pelvis is if, if all you have are the innominate bones, you know both both sides of the pelvis, you're ninety five ninety percent of the, 95, 96% of the time you can identify if it's male or female because of the sciatic notch. The sciatic notch in females is bigger, which allows for a larger birth canal. And that's like, there's a little bit of overlap. So there are women with very, very small sciatic notches and men with very large ones. Generally speaking, you got it not. If you have the skull, the cranium, 
and the pelvis, you're up to 97% because of the, the bone right behind the ears. If you feel right behind your ears, it's called the mastoid process. In men, it's large and lumpy. In women, it's small and pointy. Um, uh, I do this in class all the time. I, I ask all the people in class to feel right above your eyes. And if, you, if you're a male, you should feel a little bit of a ridge up there. And if you're a female, it's absolutely smooth. Then you get all these guys panicking because they don't feel the ridge. And I say, well, you know, maybe maybe you need some, uh, you know, uh, some, some help there. But it, it, there, that one's not a really good indicator of male and female. Age determination, until you hit the age of about 21, it's really easy to, to determine how old a person is on the basis of uh, tooth eruption. So you've got the, 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 um, the baby teeth. The deciduous dentition, I love that, right? It's deciduous dentition because like the leaves that fall off trees, these are the teeth that fall out. So that's pretty cool. And then the permanent dentition comes in at a fairly regular rate. When you're born, all of the long bones in your body, your your humerus, your tibia, your radius and ulna, your femur, they're all in three pieces. The two end caps or epiphyses and the diaphysis, which is the shaft, and they're connected by cartilage. And your bones actually grow out from the ends of the, the shafts, so your body doesn't have to redesign the end caps, which are very, very complicated every time you grow a little bit. So you, you, they sort of grow out from the, the center out. Those all fuse at a very regular rate. So you can literally um, x-ray a person, and as long as a person has had a reasonable diet, and look at which of the, of the fusions have taken place and which haven't, you can tell what the age of that person was, usually to within six months. Well, that's pretty damn cool. Once you hit 21 or 22, there's not a lot else going on except for two things. Well, three things. One is, yeah, you start wearing out. Problem with that, though, is that if you are, if you look at the, the, the skeletons of, of slaves, of African captives in, the, in America, their bodies are wearing out a whole lot faster than my fat ass sitting in front of a computer. So you have to factor that in. So obviously, somebody who looks 80, they might be 30 because they were they you know they were out in the field mm-hmm. 16 hours a day, literally worked to death. But things that happen fairly regularly and that are not contingent on the amount of work you do in your life. One is the the sutures, the the little squiggly marks on your on your cranium, where the the various cranial plates when you're born, those are all pure cartilage, real loose, that allows your head to go all kinds of funky on the way out of the birth canal. Also, human beings, our brains are only about a quarter the size they are when you reach adulthood. That's way different. Chimpanzees, it's the, a, a baby chimp's brain is pretty close to 40 to 50% of its adult size. Our brains are half that. We are about a quarter that size, which means a lot of growth, which means those cranial plates need to be able to expand out uh, which uh, And the, what allows for that are this, this soft cartilage between the individual plates. Eventually, though, you reach full uh, you know, adulthood, those sutures continue to disappear through life. So right, right now, if you're like 30, if you were to look at your skull, peel back all the skin, you would see all those squiggly lines. If you're 80, it looks totally smooth. The, the, the sutures are gone. And it happens at a fairly regular rate so that forensic scientists will look at those sutures and go, well, this guy was probably in his between 45 and 55. It's a decade. I got that. But you know he's not 80 and you know he's not 20. Right. But now the other thing, the thing about the Giants is what a forensic scientist will then do is say, look, we know that there are 10 people missing. We know one of the guys was six foot four. 
We know one of the guys was 5'5". Five, five. Let's look at the long bones, especially the femur, the thigh bone. Measure it. Put that measurement in. These guys have been doing this for long enough that they have a series of you know, their regression formulas, right? So there's a little formula where you put that length in and outspits the, out of the formula the probable overall height of that person. The femur is the best bone for doing that. The, the, that's your thigh bone. Your shin bone, the tibia, is pretty good. Once you start getting into arms, there are people with really long arms who are short, so that's not, that doesn't work so well. It's a little bit different for different ethnic groups because of different body proportions, but we're talking about a few-inch difference. To get back to the, my story, the guy, the, the, the skeleton that this individual was saying, absolute proof positive of the existence of giants, I tracked down the metrics for that skeleton, the exact one he was talking about. And when you plug the femur into the formula, the person who left behind that skeleton was not 8 feet tall or 12 feet tall or 7 feet tall, wasn't even 6 feet tall. He was like 5'10 or 5'11. Wow. You know, or, or, well, two possibilities. One is this guy was so peculiarly proportioned, he would have been in a sideshow at a circus. I mean, you you would not recognize this guy as having a human form mm-hmm. if he was 10 feet tall and his femur was the size of somebody who's 5 foot 10. It's just bizarre. Or what this guy's response was is I'm lying. I'm making this up just to hide the fact. I, w- I want to make an announcement right here and right now. So everybody listening to this podcast, me, Kenny Fader, boy archaeologist, if I ever find a, a skeleton of somebody who's 12 feet tall, I here do solemnly swear and promise that I will announce it to the world and I will go try to, to, to get National Geographic to give me a whole bunch of money to excavate it some more. How's that? I mean, there's no reason for me to hide that fact. I'd become rich and famous if I found something like that. You can't handle the truth. Uh, you know what? Maybe I, maybe nobody can handle the truth or something like that. Well, you know? let's, let's talk about this. If, if, yeah. if, if giants existed, what, what kind of archaeology would we expect to find if a race of giants existed? I mean, what, what, <laughs> how would we determine that versus just really big buildings people built? You would, you, well, you gotta find some big ass skeletons. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, you, you gotta find, you gotta find human skeletons who are proportioned in such a way that, yep, these guys had to be to eight, nine, ten, twelve feet tall or whatever. You're right. You know, looking at artifacts that are really honking big, well, so what? People make big stuff, you know? Um, I teach a class in experimental archaeology where literally for an entire semester, I have kids banging the hell out of rocks and trying to replicate tools made by people a long time ago. And I show them artifacts that <laughs> they people have people sign up because they think they're going to be napping. There's a line from an old Marx Brothers movie, Horse Feathers, where you know, it's all in a college. And the Groucho Marx character, who's like the, 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 the head of the college, the, the, the chairman of the college or whatever, says that he's decided the way he's going to save money is by tearing down all the dormitories. And somebody asks him, well, where will the children sleep? Where will the students sleep? And somebody responds, in the classrooms where they always sleep. <laughs> whatever. So, I mean, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, these, so the, the thing is, though, I bring into that class artifacts that we have found that are, in fact, uh, reflections of people in the past just trying to be really stinking impressive. We have a site here in Connecticut 
where most of the the spear points that we find are maybe a couple three inches long. So all they have to be, they're aerodynamic, they're hefted onto wooden shafts. That's what you need to kill the animals that are around here, basically deer, okay? I've got sites where people were making things that are, you know, eight, nine, ten inches long. But don't let anybody ever tell you that size is not impressive and size doesn't matter. At least when it comes to spear points, it matters. It's really impressive. And they, these things are found in caches and places where people hid them away. They were never intended for use. They were merely intended to be really stinking impressive. And they are. People do that. We build huge buildings today. We make large, oversized automobiles. I mean, most those stretch Hummers, is that because there's really tall guys driving them? Or is it just, you know, it's a bunch of kids going to prom and they want to impress their friends? I mean, the bottom line, the only way, and I mean, that's, that's the same. I, I, I argue about this in class with all my, I have a Bigfoot fan in one of my classes. He's sure that Bigfoot's real. And every day, every class I say, bring me one, you know, walk them in here. Show me the bones. Don't just be telling me about all this. Well, there, were, there was this out of focus photograph and there's this really blurry video. You know, I'm not impressed. The fact that there are people who made huge buildings in the past or enormous thrones or whatever, whatever. Bring me, bring me a, a skeleton that's clearly proportioned in such a way the femurs are the right length, the tibia's the right length, that this, these guys were 8, 9, 10, 12 feet tall, then I'm convinced. Until that, it's a really nice story, but I'm not, you know, not going to be uh, submitting a grant proposal to Geographic or the National Science Foundation on that basis. Are there any benefits uh, to uh, gigantism? Uh, I know that in many cases, giants such as Robert Wadlow and other people, uh, they often have really bad health problems, just I think due to the, the, the weight and, the, you know, just the, the human body isn't meant to be, you know, seven feet tall. Uh, can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that look, you know, we live on a, gravity, on a planet with a certain degree of gravity, and we are, we're bipeds, you know, we're not quadrupeds. And so, whereas you get, you got some pretty big quadrupeds, and their weight is distributed over, you know, over four limbs. We got everything, everything sitting on those, the, you know, on those feet, those two little feet with those little ankles that we've got. We also have the, the issue that our, um, bipedalism is a real pain in the ass. I mean, literally a pain in the ass. And you know, all these people with bad backs and sciatica and everything else. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, whenever I argue with these intelligent design people, I say, hey, dude, look at, look at the, the, the shape of the sacrum, which is this triangular side, triangular shaped bone at the bottom of your back. It's almost designed to rip your pelvis apart. If it, that's bad design, that's not good design. No designer would ever design a human being as a biped. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. And as a result, you know, once we get above a certain weight and a certain height, the, the, unless you fundamentally change how our, our spinal column is put together, you fundamentally change how it articulates with our pelvis and fundamentally change how we get, around, get, along, get around, it's really going to be a tough call. And you're right. When we see people who are, who are substantially taller than, you know, the, the modern human range. And that range includes people who are seven feet tall. But we start getting an eight, nine feet tall, or certainly up in the eights. I guess there's some people, people um, some folks who've been well into their eight, you know, into eight feet. Mm-hmm. They're having a lot of health issues. And so it's, I, I am, I would be greatly surprised if you could take, ju- you know, not, not redesign the human body, but just take the human body, multiply it out, and get it that tall and have it work properly. So I think that that's, you know, that's, that is an interesting argument. But even that argument I walk away from says, you know what, I don't care. It, because the bottom line is there isn't any evidence for this. It, mm-hmm. it's, you know, we can, we'll talk about whether or not these people had health issues. First, you've got to show me they existed. We, we can't even get that far with this. Well, for example, if you were going to expand that to Bigfoot, uh, you know, I mean, some, d- depending on, on which, which eyewitness you believe or which, right, which yeah. ill-informed writer you talk, you talk to, <laughs> Uh, you know, some of them say that Bigfoot is, you know, 12 feet tall or so. Um, of course, other ones say that it's, you know, just about human size, oddly enough. The issue there is that, again, gorillas and even Gigantopithecus, which is supposed to be about, well, not quite twice the size of a gorilla, which is a pretty substantial animal. These guys are quadrupeds. They walk around on all fours almost all of the time. So you're distributing all that extra body weight across four limbs. Um, you know, don't, don't, don't think about when you think about gorillas and chimps and stuff like that, don't think about, oh, I saw at the circus ones and they taught them to walk upright. That's not the way their bodies, their bodies are not good at that. Uh, and so that's really different from talking about something like Sasquatch, who is walking bipedally a whole hell of a lot like us, who is, you know, literally 11 or 12 feet tall. I just, mm-hmm. the biomechanics of that, I think, would be a real challenge for me to accept. But there again, okay, prove me wrong. But the only way you can prove me wrong is by bringing the goddamn Bigfoot into the room and saying, well, here's Chewbacca, right? Deal with it. <laughs> so why do you think so many ancient cultures postulated giants? I mean, what, why, why? <laughs> well, you know, hey, man, just as many ancient cultures postulated little elves and fairies and little gnomes and creatures, you know, like the little people and stuff like that. It's like if you're going to make up something, if you're going to you're going to put something in some sort of a sacred realm, you got to take it out of the mundane, you know. So you can make them really big or make them really small. You can put them way the hell up in the air. You can put them under the ground. I mean, you you don't have a whole lot of choices. If if you make them look just like people, not really impressive, you know. It's just like oh well, he's a guy. No no no, I'm I'm a very very short giant. Well okay, or a really really tall elf, but then they look just like us. It's not impressive. 
if you're going to make this stuff up, man, you got to make up these creatures and, and make them in such a way that they are extraordinary. And for human beings, really tall is extraordinary, as is really small. So I, I, I'm not surprised. It's, it's the same reason I'm not surprised when you get all these folks talking about, why does everybody put the gods up in the air? Well, because they're more impressive up there looking down on us than they would be if they're just walking around. And, or, or if you put them under the ground. I mean, one of my favorite, my favorite story is um, um, uh, this happened in New Guinea. Uh, back in the 1930s, when about a million people living up in the highlands who had not been contacted by by uh, anybody of European descent were encountered for the first time by f- these three Australian brothers. These guys were sheep; sh- um, they were sheep farmers in Australia, and they were looking for gold. And they came into these areas, and they ran into these folks who had no co- contact with the outside world. And the the, the, the the folks in New Guinea assumed that these three brothers and their helpers were gods. Because they were, had white, white skin, who they'd never seen before, and they had all this interesting technology. But my favorite story there was when they, this guy who was being interviewed in like the 1980s, when he was a little kid when this happened. This is a guy from New Guinea, a New Guinea native, who said, yes, we saw these gods, and we followed them around. And one time we followed one of them, and he, this, go, this god went into the bush, and he pulled out his pants, and he squatted, and he took a dump. And then we went, after he was gone, we wanted to know everything about the gods. We went up, and it was at that moment we knew that they weren't gods because their smells just like ours. That's awesome. (laughs) That's sort of perfect, you know? So the deal is, when that happens, suddenly they lose their appeal. So if they're, if the, if the the gods are, you know, they're six, they're five, eight, just like, you know, us, that's not so impressive. Uh, They, they're just like us. That's not scary. That's not powerful. So the fact that cultures all over the world have giants and have tiny little gnomes and elves and fairies, uh, that's exactly what you'd expect. I'm sorry, can you, can you give the name of your book again, please? Oh, yes, the name of the book. A lot of people make this mistake when I say it, Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries. They ask, why are you writing about frogs? And I say, no, it's not about frogs. It's frauds, myths and mysteries, science and pseudoscience in archaeology, McGraw-Hill, they make lovely Christmas presents. This is the perfect time of year to get a copy. Have you got a copy, well, your, you got a copy nearby? I certainly do. I've got a copy on my shelf. So on the cover, it, it's got a picture. Is that like a a, a, a Neolithic uh, pie? Is that the symbol pie? Is that- uh, <laughs> what the hell are you looking at? Dude? Which, which version do you have? I've got a fourth edition paperback. It's got a big oh, stone. Fourth pack. edition. For goodness sake. We're in the sixth edition. I'm working on the seventh. you got to catch up, dude. Oh, okay, this, yes. All this new the fourth stuff. Fourth edition has a ta- like a rock. We, we would call it a table rock around here in the, in the south. But it's, it's, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Look at that. Like, it looks like the pie symbol. I don't know. That just amused me. It does a little bit. Yeah, these, this is a, this is a, uh, a megalithic tomb. And uh, not my photograph. Megalithic, not neolithic. My bad. Yeah, well, that's okay. The, um, the, yeah, it's a megalithic tomb. It's probably, I bet you that's Cornwall or something like that. I'm just making that up. Um, it's cool. It, it was, there were dead people in there. Well, it's cool, though, they've gone from megalithic to neolithic to lithium. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever whatever works, man, that's, that's okay. So, uh, anyway, uh, about the archaeological method uh, in, in Chapter 6. You talk about this uh, interesting site, uh, the um, this they call the Payne site uh, for Steve Payne. And you talk about yeah. how this little bitty 
uh, location for just a little bit of time. Some people stayed overnight and sharpened their tools, yeah. had a campfire, ate, and uh, broke a pot, and left. There you go. That's that's the archaeology. You know, the funny thing is, whenever I you know talk about archaeology to, to people, their, their expectation is that I'm out there, you know, digging up pyramids and here in Connecticut or something like that. When I tell them that 99% of the stuff we dig up is stuff that people thought so little about, they throw it on the ground and walked away from it. We often joke in archaeology that, you know, if the people who left this crap behind a thousand years ago, if they would have known, if they would have had any idea that a thousand years from now, some jerk like me is going to be painstakingly with like, with, with dental tools and brushes, removing all this junk that was just to them, garbage, crap, junk, throw it away. I think they'd be pretty amused by that. But, you know, that's what it is. Archaeology, 99% of, of archaeology is digging up people's garbage, stuff that they thought so little about, used up, broken, that they tossed it. But then the, 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 the metaphor I always give is that, look, it's like, it's like forensic science, you know, where, where detectives investigate the scene of a crime. We're investigating the scene of a life. And just like them, what they have, you know, the, the, there's a dead body and the perp is gone. And what you have are the physical, is the physical evidence of what happened in this place at this time. It's exactly what we do. And everything, every little piece of trash, every little discarded item, everything broken, everything lost is tells, helps us to tell the story of what happened in that place at that time. And that's what makes it pretty exciting when, you know, you realize, oh, that little piece of stone, which doesn't look particularly impressive, but you know, the last time somebody took that, the last time somebody touched it, had it in their hands, is a thousand years ago. And you're making that direct connection, that physical connection to somebody who's been gone for a thousand years. Yeah, so that's you, pretty cool. Yeah, you made two fantastic points with that, with that little piece of, uh, of, of information. One was that, that, the um, the things that archaeology can tell us about uh, what people have done in a location is directly tied to um, what they leave behind. And yeah. two, that even a tiny little bit of material left behind can tell you a lot of information about what the people were doing. Those those two pieces of information. Um, and, right. and so that if we were uh, looking for lost civilizations or postulated civilizations or giants or any kind of uh, records like that, that there would be evidence left behind. You can't clean up everything. You no, I mean, that's, that's, that is so, that is absolutely the heart of archaeology. And I tell this to people who I have arguments with all the time. They say, look, if tomorrow you proved to me, had good evidence that, it, that Atlantis really was out there in the Atlantic Ocean, I would I would need to reassess a lot of the stuff that I that I think about what happened in the past and how it happened. But if you were to prove to me that Atlantis really existed, but there's no physical evidence of it anymore, so I don't even expect that to happen, that rocks my world because I know the bottom line in archaeology. And I, I use I use George Carlin all the time. You know, George Carlin had the routine about, you know, your house is a place for your stuff. And that's what archaeologists dig up. We dig up people's stuff. And their stuff is just like your stuff. I mean, that was the great Carlin line that, you know, my stuff is stuff, your stuff is shit, right? So that, <laughs> but that's because your stuff looks different from mine. You come into my house and you look at the crap that's in my office. Nobody has this stuff. It, it, it's a re- direct reflection of who I am. And that's true at a cultural level as well. Um, 
It is, I will, I mean, I'll say this categorically, it's impossible for any civilization to have existed and not leave diagnostic, and diagnostic is a word archaeologists use a lot, diagnostic physical evidence. That is stuff, something that reflects them and only them. You know, I, I tell folks who will tell me that, oh, you know, Phoenicians were living in Connecticut 4,000 years ago. And I say, but there's no damn physical evidence of that. They say, well, maybe you wouldn't expect it. I say, you know how I know that Europeans came into Connecticut? That I know categorically, not because of books, that Europeans were in Connecticut in the 1600s? Because I dig and I find their crap. I find their garbage. It doesn't look like the garbage left behind by Native Americans. It's glazed ceramics. It's pewter pieces. It's glass. It's stuff that you never see before. Now we've got it. That's what it's all about. If, if, if the Atlanteans were in Connecticut, man, they were the, the neatest bastards on the planet, which I just don't think that's possible. <laughs> or, you know what? They weren't here. And I use that argument all the time with the Roswell crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I, you know, I, actually they tried to – the Sci-Fi Channel did this a couple of years ago. They did it really badly. But I've been telling my students for years – you give me a, give me a few thousand bucks, send me out to the Roswell area with 10 experienced diggers, and if anything crashed there, I don't care that the Army says they cleaned it up. We would find evidence of it because that's the bottom line is that nobody's so good that they clean all that crap up. That's why the, the prisons are filled with people who thought they cleaned up the crime scene, but we found their <laughs> DNA. We found their footprints. We found their pubic hairs, whatever the hell it is. God damn it, they leave it behind, and that's our job is to find it. So, yeah, in, in any of these cases, we're going to talk about Atlantis or ancient astronauts. The notion that those people could have been here, but they didn't leave anything behind. I, I'll give you a, a great example of the insanity of this. But there are a number of sites in New England which I know pretty damn well are colonial sites. They're, 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 they're these um, stone structures, beehive structures, and, and stone walls that were used by the colonists, who many of whom, in fact, came from the British Isles. There are people who go to these things and say, oh, no, absolutely not. These are 4,000 years old. And the people who built Stonehenge came to Connecticut and Massachusetts and Vermont and New Hampshire and Rhode Island, and they built these things. And then I say to them, well, okay, that's easy to test. When we dig these, we find colonial artifacts. We find stuff from the 17 and 1800s. We don't find anything from 4,000 years ago. You know what the argument they give me is? Oh, but these are sacred sites. And, and people don't mess up sacred sites. So these were used as holy places so they didn't leave anything behind. And you got to laugh at the naivete of that. There's an entire branch of archaeology called church archaeology where people dig up medieval churches. And what do they find? They find all the crap that people left behind, lost, discarded. That, you know, it's just crazy to think that we actually have sites where there are no artifacts. There's no physical evidence because people didn't want to soil it because it was sacred. That's just crazy talk, and it's, it's reflective of the complete lack of understanding that a lot of these people have about what, the arche- what constitutes the archaeological record, how it comes into existence, and, and what the hell it is that we find. Um, if, if they were here, we would find it, period. Oh, you know, you make me want to see a TV show like CSI, but with archaeology. Yeah, oh, dude, I'm there. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Would that be cool? Yeah, yeah, it would be totally cool. And that's yeah, that's there's 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 so many good stories all over the world of people finding incredible details about ancient civilizations by finding these little bits and pieces of stuff. And our technologies get better all the time, so we're finding more and more stuff that we didn't think. You know, uh, they're you know actually finding blood residue on on 
2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000-year-old stone tools and then being able to identify, if not the species, the genus of the critter that was killed with the tool. I mean, that's just crazy shit. And it's, you know, it just, just you know, uh, it just gives me sort of chills thinking that we can figure that out from such a long time ago. Yeah, I guess but that's, a lot of, a yeah, lot of go ahead. I was going to say a lot of the techniques have changed since you got involved, I mean, since you've been teaching. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm really old. So back, see, the thing is, a lot of the sites that I dig, I actually remember being there when they were behind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring up your book again. I oh, forget. yeah. that's a, You know what? The, the title is Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience and Archaeology. Um, it's, a, it's a great book, and it is uh, suitable for presence. Or oh, yeah. have it around that. You should buy multiple copies, seal them up, put you know, shrink wrap them, put them on your shelf. Someday they'll be uh, shrunk wrapped on your shelf. That's that's well, you know, I think they're suitable right there uh, with the Gideon Bible in every hotel. Hey, room. here's what's really cool though. <laughs> literally, literally within the last couple of weeks, I got um, the the Japanese edition has just been published, and I got five copies in Japanese. I mean, it, it looks like my book. I assume it's my book. I can't read a word of it. But uh, so now it's in English, Italian, Spanish, and Japanese. Congratulations! So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Konnichiwa. So, so now I'll be getting threatening, threatening hate mail from all over the globe, including the Pacific Rim. I'm really thrilled about that. You'll be having ninja assassins after you. <laughs> oh, Jesus, no, please. Ah, well, yeah, don't worry about it. You won't know until it's too late. So. Yeah, there you go. That's right. I'll never see it coming. And so. right. did, did, did you add any uh, data about the, um, the, was it the Okinawan pyramids off the coast of Okinawa? You know, I don't. I, the funny thing about the Japanese edition, from what I could make out, Anything related to Japan was excised. They removed all that stuff. And I, I guess they don't want to offend, me to offend anybody in Japan. There's all this stuff about Atlantis and ancient astronauts. They're, they're, they're jiggy with that. But about the, this guy, uh, Shinichi Fujimura, who was this big fraud who found, who planted all these artifacts in Japan, totally gone from the book. So I guess we're, we're not talking about that in Japan anyway. Well, through the techniques that you teach in the book, they'll be able to figure that stuff out themselves. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's what I tell my students these days. That every time I teach them something, I steal from them the opportunity for them to learn to discover it for themselves. So that's what I, I tell them. I'm just going to sit in the front of the classroom and I'm going to read a magazine and and you know I'm doing them a favor by not stealing from them that opportunity. I don't know how well that's going to go over with the dean, but we'll see what happens. See you go. Yeah. Okay. Was, you're you're just mentioning uh, the the hoax in Japan. Can you talk to talk a little bit about the the, the whole Cardiff uh, giant hoax? Cardiff giant is my absolute favorite archaeological fraud because it's it's hilarious. It's got so many different elements in it, and it was so short lived. It, you know, it lasted just for a couple of months, really. So the deal is, it's October in 1869, and uh, there's a farmer living in upstate New York in the little town of Cardiff. And his name, you can't make this stuff up, right? You know, I mean, I, I couldn't have made up a better name for a farmer in upstate New York. Stub Newell. I mean, is that great or what? You know, Stub Newell. And according to what I've read, Stub got that first name as the result, in fact, of an anatomical anomaly. So good to know, right? Yeah, he lost his big toe to frostbite. So... <laughs> According, well, that's what they tell me. And according to according to what I've read too, that he used that that he had when he had the toe cut off, he had it pickled and wore it wore it suspended from a chain around his neck. 
So you always see Stubb with his big toe hanging from his neck. So that that gives you an idea of of you know Stubb's personality to begin with. But anyway, Stubb Stubb hires a couple of guys to dig a well on his farm. They get about three feet down. They hit something. You know, it's good clean agricultural soil. There are no rocks in it. But at three feet, they hit something kind of weird, and they clear it around. It looks like two huge human feet. And then they, they open it up. They stop digging the well. They open it up. And by the time they're done, they have, you know, what effectively is a 10, 11-foot-tall stone giant, a giant naked guy, as I call him, uh, lying there in this pit. And they hey, stub, that's weird. What the hell is it? And they decided that it wasn't a statue, but a giant petrified man, you know, like petrified wood. And with that afternoon, people, this is like a Saturday, people from all over the community are coming in and uh, to take a look at the giant, the Goliath of Cardiff. They literally called him that. Uh, Sunday in church sermons, uh, preachers talked about the discovery of a, a, a giant, like the stories in the Bible talk about. There's a giant right here in Cardiff. Uh, and uh, by Monday, this is the weird part, by Monday, Stub Newell who apparently had just like a circus tent lying around in a barn, had it erected over the giant, who was, as we archaeologists like to say, in situ, left in place, <laughs> and hired a carnival barker and started charging people 50 cents a pop to come and see the giant. This and, was Stubbs' erection. Oh, right? oh, oh, yes, absolutely. This was Stubbs' erection. That's interesting. Um <laughs> Sorry. Well, thank listen, listen. Thank God the Cardiff Giant was in fact a giant naked guy, and thank God that he was not excited when he died because otherwise they wouldn't have had to put a pole in the middle of the tent. <laughs> this guy's a big dude. Um, the the way I twenty or twenty five people would be brought into the the tent at one time, and they put a sheet over the giant naked guy, and the 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 barker. It was gas lights and all. I guess it's lamps, and he would. Pull the sheet from the, the Cardiff Giant. And according to newspaper accounts, grown men would cry out and women would faint when they saw this giant naked guy. And uh, he's pretty giant. And then they would talk about this is a guy from before Noah's Flood walking around Cardiff. And scientists don't believe it. But here we have evidence of a you know, biblical story of giants. Stubb was making tons of money charging people 50 cents a pop. Um, so, and In fact, the, the economic... Fallout was such that um, Syracuse is the biggest town nearby to Cardiff, and they're the ones who've got they've got hotels and restaurants and all the kinds of of uh, uh, amenities that tourists are going to need. And as people are hearing about this, newspapers are picking it up, and literally you got people from New York City, from Albany, from Hartford, from New Haven, from Boston, from Philadelphia, even Washington D.C. This has become like a you know a must see thing. They're taking the train up to Cardiff, doing a day trip or an overnighter, and and seeing the giant from before Noah's flood. As a result, though, a lot of these folks are staying in Syracuse. They're they're spending money in Syracuse, and a consortium of businessmen got sort of panicked that their hotels are full, the restaurants are full. What if this guy Stubb decides to sell the giant? And they did that. They actually had a pretty good reason to be concerned about it because P.T. Barnum. Circus Empresario, Connecticut native, um, actually offered Stubb 30000 bucks to buy it from him so he could put it in the circus. Stubb turned him down, and then a consortium of Syracuse businessmen offered him 30000 bucks for a three-quarter interest in the giant, and he sold it to them. 
which wow. meant that for every buck that they made on it, Stubb, along with pocketing thirty grand, he was also getting twenty five cents out of every dollar. Um, I gave this lecture at Yale a few years back, and an economist came up to me and said that his back of the envelope calculation. Thirty thousand bucks in eighteen sixty nine is the equivalent of about three quarters of a million bucks today. So that's you're a farmer in upstate New York today, and somebody offers you three quarters of a mill for a, a big statue on your property. Man, you're taking that money. Um, the the consortium of businessmen, in order to sort of boost sales, had the thing um, excavated, brought it to Syracuse, where they put it in an exhibition hall. At, out just across the street from the train station. Literally, if you were traveling through Syracuse and if you had a little bit of a layover or the train stopped for 20 minutes, you could get off the train, you could go across the street, pay your 50 cents, see the Cardiff Giant, one of the wonders of the world, and then you can get back on the train and never, never miss your, your appointments. They were making tons of money. But unfortunately, Stubb had a big mouth. And it's like any other conspiracy. You know, there was more than one person involved. And somebody, and Stubb was the guy who started running his mouth. Conspiracies don't work. Stubb started telling people about this great hoax that he had pulled off. There were all these, all these investigations were initiated. Um, and then a, a guy confessed. Stubb Newell's cousin, his name is George Hall, confessed to the whole thing, gave details of it. Um, and the funny thing was that Hall was an atheist and a cigar manufacturer had sent a consignment of cigars out to his um, his daughter and son-in-law in Iowa, told them, sell them, give me back my, my cost and keep the profits. They were screwing this up. He went out there, and while he was there, he ran into a minister, and he got into a big argument with the guy about the, the Bible. And in fact, asked him, do you believe in the literal truth of the Bible? And the, the minister said, yes, I do. And Stub Newell, I mean Stub Newell, George, this George Hall is the cousin. George Hall said... Let's turn to any page of the Bible and turn to the, the section on David and Goliath. And so, do you really believe that there were, you know, 10, 11, 12 foot tall giants in those days? And the minister said, yes, I did. I do. And George Hall, ever the entrepreneur, ever the businessman said, would you pay me money if somebody had an artifact that proved that story? <laughs> minister, you know, ka-ching. And the minister apparently said to, to, to George Hall, I don't need that to prove the Bible. But there'd be no harm in paying a little fee to see something that proved those scientists wrong. And Hull said that night he couldn't sleep. And that's where the idea was hatched. He bought himself a big-ass piece of gypsum, shipped it to Chicago, where he hired a couple of stonecutters to carve a giant naked guy. Man, he told these guys, it's a secret. Don't tell anybody. Only work in your shop on Sundays. Put Put you know, wool blankets over the windows and doors to muffle the sound. Um, these guys did the statue, and according to Hull, when he got there, he was mortified, horrified by what he saw, because they had carved a giant naked statue. I mean, what, what do you do? How do you c explain that to, to sculptors? I want a giant naked statue. Well, why do you want that? I don't, it's a surprise for my wife. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, when, it, when, when Hull got there, he looked down on it, he was horrified, because Hull has a beard. They made the giant with a beard. And he knew nobody's going to – it's going to be hard enough for anybody to believe that a human body could petrify. Nobody's going to believe that the hair on a beard could petrify. But even when they removed the beard, the face looked a lot like George Hull, 
which would have been very inconvenient. People are looking at the giant. They look up at Stub Newell's cousin, George Hill. They go, George, you know what's amazing? Looks a lot like you. <laughs> so they had to change the face. And then Hull went out and actually bought a vat of acid to pour over it because it looked too fresh. And then actually went out at, at it with a series of knitting needles that he had pounded through blocks of wood to make it look old. And it gave it almost like pores, and he loved that effect. They, he said when he poured the acid over it, like a mushroom cloud appeared over the statue, which these, these two sculptors who must have thought this guy was totally sick. But you know what the hell? He paid them the money. He then had it boxed up, shipped to his cousin's farm, where they put it in the ground, and it lay there for one full year. They let it season so that nobody would remember the shipment and that it would look more in place in the ground. Um, and then a year later, he gives Stubb the highest sign. Hub hires the guys to dig the to dig the well, and they find the statue. Start charging people money. Once George Hull confesses, nobody wants to see the giant anymore. They're really pissed off at him. They're really pissed off at at Stubb Newell, and the giant basically it's brought around to county fairs, and uh, it's just at this point. Um, a curiosity, and is it making anybody a whole lot of money? Here's the funny part, one of the funny parts, is you remember P.T. Barnum tried to buy the thing, and they, he was turned down? P.T. Barnum came up with the perfect P.T. Barnum solution. You know what he did? He went and had a copy made and started showing the copy as the real deal. And I always ask my students, this hurts my head. The Cardiff Giant is a fake, right? P.T. Barnum's is a fake of the fake. That's Is that like a double negative? Does that make it real? I don't know. Hmm. But now here's the deal. He brought it on the road, told people it was the real deal. He threatened to sue the people in Syracuse if they call theirs the real one. Boss, nice. Is there no integrity? No. But now here's when, when – Where's the honesty? By sheer coincidence – the circus was in Manhattan, as was the Cardiff Giant, the real Cardiff Giant. So the real one was there, the fake one was there. Which one outdrew the other? P.T. Barnum's outdrew the real one. He was making the money on the fake of the fake. The real fake was sitting there all by itself. Mark Twain thought this was so hilarious. There's a short story by Mark Twain called The Ghost Story that's all about the fact that the real Cardiff Giant is is nobody's looking at the real one. Everybody's focused on the fake of the fake. And then, in fact, even <laughs> even the ghost, what the deal is, it's a hotel across the street from where the giant is being displayed, and the ghost of the Cardiff giant is haunting the halls. And finally, somebody deals with the giant, with the ghost. This is what's wrong. And the ghost says, hey, listen, I'm haunting the halls over here because the exhibit hall across the street is empty at night, but I cannot be put, I cannot rest. My spirit cannot be cannot be at rest until my body is put back in the ground. And the guy starts laughing hilariously. And he says, well, that's not funny. I'm talking about my agony here. And the guy says, no, what's funny is you're haunting the wrong one. That's P.T. Farnham's fake. <laughs> so it says, you know, the, the Cardiff Giant has fooled everybody, and now he's fooled himself. Bit, what's the, and then what happens is that the, the, the giant just is languishing in some barn someplace in New York in the, the, the first half of the 20th century. And a, a newspaper guy in Iowa, an editor, decides that he wants it. 
because that's where the stone came from. It came was bought in Iowa. He buys it from who's left of the the, the, the businessmen and their heirs, brings it back to Iowa. And here's the funny part. I did a show, I did for the History Channel, they did a whole thing on archaeological frauds, and I was the big talking head in it. After the show is on, I get a phone call from one of the deans at my university saying, Kenny, you're not going to believe this, but when I was five years old, I lived in Iowa, and my friend, who was five, his dad was a newspaper guy, and I used to play in his house all the time, and in his basement was this giant statue of a naked guy. They said, oh, my God. That was that's the Cardiff Giant right there. So he played with the Cardiff Giant when he was a kid. 1939, August issue of National Geographic. They do a whole a whole story about Iowa. Lots of pictures of corn. Lots of pictures of pigs and a photograph of the teenage daughter of this newspaper guy sitting on the lap of the the naked Cardiff Giant. I have no idea what they were thinking, but there she is, sort of holding the giant's hand in National Geographic. Uh, uh, in the 1930s, the, um, the late 30s, early 40s, a new uh, head director of the New York State Historical Association is installed. He decides, we got to get the giant back here. He buys it from the newspaper guy and installs it at the, the Farmer's Museum, which is up in Cooperstown, where today, yes, you can see the actual real Cardiff giant. He's got a big circus tent over him, and he's there for the, all the world to see. The most unfortunate thing at all, the last of all, the last time I was there, beautiful exhibit. It talks all about archaeological frauds and how, although scientists knew immediately this thing was a fake, nobody, nobody listened to the scientists. They wanted to believe it. Last time I'm there, all this great signage. I'm waiting for a couple and their two kids to leave so I can get good pictures. As they're leaving, the wife turns to the husband and says, wow, so are giants real then? And the husband turned to the wife and said, yeah, I guess. There's one of them. And they walked out of the tent. Nice. And, oh. I to, and the, the sad thing is they already had kids, so I couldn't like beat them to death so they wouldn't pass that down to like a, the next generation. It already had happened. So I don't know. You know, when you, you hear stuff like that, you just never want to go to museums again. What are people like? In your book, you actually covered uh, not only were scientists not fooled, but they were able to, even back then, give really remarkable, accurate predictions about when the thing was put in place. Yeah, there's a geologist. Well, first of all, the, the deal is um, if if George Hull really wanted to prove that this was a petrified man, he wouldn't have bought a piece of gypsum. Gypsum is a, it's a sedimentary rock. It's a soft rock. It bears no relationship whatsoever to the mineralized, um, uh, petrified wood and that, you know, that, that the giant was supposed to represent. Gypsum is really soft. When a geologist looked at the, the giant when he was on the farm and looked underneath and could see the level of deterioration already in the gypsum, he in fact said, this thing can't have been in the ground for more than about a year, which was exactly right. Exactly right. But when they looked underneath, they found – he saw, as did a paleontologist, they saw decayed vegetable plant material that obviously got in the pit when they dug the thing up. Well, that can't last for more than a year in the acidic soil of New York. It was abundantly clear. A, a sculptor looked at the giant. And his, he was supposed to look at it and say, no, this is not the result of a sculptor's art. And he looked at it and he said, these are chisel marks. These are the kinds of marks a, a not very good sculptor, sculptor, sculptor leaves behind. And you can clearly see today, when you look at the giant, 
You can see every every mark where the beard was removed from the face. You can see every one of them. So it's like, oh, my God. Scientists knew it. O.C. Marsh, who's a very well-known paleontologist, if you go to the Yale Peabody Museum or the American Museum of Natural History in New York, you will see a lot of the, the dinosaur skeletons are things that were discovered, excavated, and brought back to the United States or brought back from the, the American West to the East, uh, were brought back by O.C. Marsh. He looked at, when the giant was in New York City, he actually went and saw it, and he told people immediately that this is a transparent and ignorant hoax. This is a stupid hoax. And it didn't make any difference. Until there was a confession, people simply, you know, if scientists said it, they, had, they, were, they were hiding something. They just couldn't accept the fact that this was proof of a Bible story. So, you know, it all comes around, right? They were saying this about the Cardiff Giant in 1869. They're saying it about, you know, giants found in the 19th century today. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all part of this conspiracy. Well, that's it's actually nice. I like the fact that I am just in this lineage of scientists who have tried to keep the truth from the American public. <laughs> so keep it up, think- gang. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, dude. Why do you think so many people uh, want to treat the Bible's giant tales as literal truth? I think there's a, you know, when people talk about the Bible, and when they're, when, for example, when some of the, the cities mentioned in the Bible turn out to be actual Mesopotamian city states, um, I think folks embrace that. The the reasoning being, well, if one fact in the Bible is true, how do maybe the maybe every fact in the Bible is true, and so I think that's it. You know, it's something as ridiculous as twelve foot tall giants that science scoffs at. People like me who laugh at that and say, "Oh my God, you're that's naive, that's silly, that's stupid." There's no evidence for that. But if you can prove that one little factoid that I'm wrong about that. You know, how do you know that I'm not wrong about everything? If there can be giants, there can be Noah's Ark, there can be Ezekiel's Wheel, there can be the Shroud of Turin, there can be miraculous bursts of energy from dead bodies, there can be all of this stuff. So if I'm wrong once, maybe I'm wrong about everything. And I do see that, you know, when, when I'll talk to people about literal truth of the Bible and taking it as a metaphor, an allegory, they'll go, yes, but what about those, those city-states? They're talked about in the Old Testament. That turns out to be real, doesn't it? Well, yes. Uh, th- there, is a, there is a context, there is a historical context to the Bible, but then they take that one little fact and they run with it. So I think that's the deal, is that you know, if, if, if in fact that whole giant thing turns out, you know, works out well for these folks who want to believe in it, well, maybe everything, that all of my skepticism is completely and totally unwarranted. Well, you know, there really is a Bangor, Maine, so I'm thinking maybe some of Stephen King's stories may be true. They Well, there you go. They very well could be true. Monster Talk. Today you've been listening to Monster Talk as we interview Dr. Ken Fader on giants, archaeology, and the Cardiff giant hoax. Links to Dr. Fader's book, Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, are available in the show notes. Ben Radford writes for Live Science, Skeptical Inquirer, and is now a contributor at Discovery News. Karen Stolzno writes at Bad Language Blog, CSI's Naked Skeptic, 
Skepbitch, and can be found on Facebook and Twitter. And I'm Blake Smith, and you can find my writing in Atlanta's Examiner, as well as on Twitter and Facebook, where I write as Dr. Atlantis. Once again, we wish to thank the fine people of Skeptic Magazine for supporting Monster Talk. A special thanks to Swoopy for helping me recover the audio file from Dr. Vader's interview. Music for today's episode was provided by Dragon Ritual Drummers, and our theme music was, as always, provided by Peach Stealing Monkeys. for more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. (laughs) You're joking, right? The whole thing was a blooper. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.